We are look, in the middle of a series. We're looking at healings that Jesus does. Um, and that might sound strange to you because um, if you've been to this church for a very long time, you'll hear over and over and over again that the cross is the focal point. That's the reason why Jesus came. But in the, in the, even as we understand that the cross is the reason why Jesus came, it's not like everything that Jesus did was, as they say in many sports, garbage time. Have you heard that phrase? Like at the end of the game when you know you can't win anyway, so it's just you just put people out there, give them a chance to play. So uh, all the time that Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing people, that is not garbage time. Um, that is Im- important to his life and ministry as well. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at uh, healing mi- healing miracles of Jesus um, together. And it's safe to say that, yes, Jesus is more than a healer, but he is not less than a healer either. And I think also, as we look at Jesus' healings, Jesus' healings are very multifaceted. In other words, they're often about more than just healing. And when people are healed, Jesus heals them completely. Jesus heals them all the way, even in ways that they weren't expecting or didn't realize that they needed. So last week we talked about the the man being dropped through the ceiling. Um, And the first thing Jesus does is forgives his sins. Not what he was looking for, but it is a part of this multifaceted healing that this man is getting. Um, Healing from brokenness due to the sin and brokenness due to his body. When Jesus heals people, he heals them all the way. So we're going to look at two stories. One is a story of Jesus' healing, and another one is actually not about healing, but he uses the same language. So we're going to look at that together. We're going to start by looking at a character. Um, Biblical characters... uh, there's some that are named and some that are not named, but let's be honest, they all have names. This woman, uh, many theologians, uh, when we talk about it in literal conversation and without even smiles on our faces, this woman is known as the bent woman, uh, as you will see. And I often think about that. You don't, get to, you don't get to determine what you get to be called for the rest of you know, all of Christian history. You know? and, and this woman, she unfortunately got the short end of the stick. Some people have got great names in the Bible, like the centurion. That sounds like, that sounds like a superhero, the centurion. Uh, another people, the, the, um, I believe it was the wise-hearted women. Those guys got lucky. The rich young ruler. That sounds fantastic. But then again, then there's the, there's the other people, the bent woman, the bleeding woman, the lame man. Come on, the lame Man, can you imagine, like, meeting these people in heaven? That's all we know them as. Man, that is just awkward. And I really hope that, I really hope that if you do meet them in heaven, you do ask them their name, you get to call them that, that name. I'm sure they will appreciate that. Um, but we're going to look here at, at, at this, this woman, the bent woman. Jesus 
Up to this point, he has been teaching and healing. He's, he's known as a teacher. He's known as a healing. But also, um, there's some tension starting to mount between the scribes and Pharisees and Jesus, which is a tension that happens all throughout his ministry. Um, but it certainly starts to get heavier the longer the, the ministry continues. So we're, we're just at the point where people are starting to get fed up with what Jesus is doing. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of scribes and Pharisees, so and again, I I always I always like to throw out a caveat when we talk about um, people in Scripture, times in Scripture. It's really easy for us to be uncharitable to their views because because this is history for us. Like hindsight is twenty twenty vision. We always get to be on the right side of history, so to speak. We always say, what, what fools, they should have known that slavery was wrong or things like that. But it's just not that simple in the time that these people are living in. Okay, So we want to be charitable even to the people that when we read about and we ask, what is their problem? So I want you to, in, 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 in that mind, I want you to just kind of put yourself in the mind of the scribes and the Pharisees at this moment. Because Jesus' ministry is a madhouse. Like, there are just tons of people everywhere, not always the people that you think should belong, should be allowed to come. Uh, he's preaching in places, and people are, like, digging through roofs and dropping people down. Uh, Demons-possessed people are coming up to the pulpit, screaming and having being exercised in the middle of the service. Like, Jesus' ministry is a madhouse. And, and now the madhouse is in the synagogue, right? And I want you to, just, just for a moment, imagine that that was this church. Is that something we would we would just want or feel comfortable in? I want you to ask yourself this question. Why did you come to church? Why do you come to church? Is it so that we can meditate on Scripture and understand God more or see the power of God in the community? And if you feel any tension about what's the right answer, then I feel like you're, you're, you're on the road to feeling charitable to the scribes and Pharisees and how they're seeing things um, so here we, we have him, he's teaching in Luke 13, chapter, or sorry, chapter 13, verse 10. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's a normal thing for Jesus. As a visiting rabbi, he would be considered, a, it, it would be a, quite a boon to have him teach. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over. Hence the name Bent Woman. And could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? 
And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were, being done, that were done by him. So to fully understand what's going on here, uh, we need to talk about Sabbath and, and how embedded the idea of Sabbath is in Scripture. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word to cease or to stop. You might hear that. So like, literally that's what Sabbath is, is stopping. Um, it is repeated many times in the Jewish law. There are, there are many, many laws about what the Sabbath is and, and how it should be taken. Uh, oftentimes the, the term is uh, used keeping Sabbath. So you'll hear Sabbath keeping a lot or keeping the Sabbath. That's just um, the way that it's talked about a lot in Scripture. Uh, and there are three reasons why people are commanded to take Sabbath. When, when uh, the Bible talks about reasons for things, I think we should we should consider what it's saying. So three reasons that God gives for taking the Sabbath. The first is that because the, it is because they are no longer slaves. So they're freed from, they're freed from Egypt, and uh, God says, take, you're going to keep the Sabbath because you are free people. I've freed you. And the Sabbath is about not being slaves in some sense. Uh, the other one is because it reflects that on what God did on the seventh day on the, in the creation story. It says you, you'll take the Sabbath because God rested on the, the seventh day and declared it holy. And the third reason, which I, I feel like no one ever talks about, uh, it's in, uh, it's in uh, one of the um, minor prophets. Maybe that's why no one ever talks about it. Uh, it says that the, the reason for the Sabbath is so that the people of Israel will know that it is the Lord that sanctifies them and not by their own work. So those are the three reasons uh, why God commanded uh, Sabbath. Uh, besides those reasons, there are many laws and, uh, about what the Sabbath keeping is. Sabbath is also very serious business. So in the, in the Jewish law, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath uh, was not a timeout. It was death. So we're talking serious, serious stuff here. Um, and so I, I, I want you to even say, like, when, when, when the scribes and Pharisees are upset about Jesus for healing on the Sabbath day, it's not like they made up the concept of Sabbath just to annoy Jesus, right? This is actually deeply embedded in Scripture. It is a biblical command, um, and, and they are very angry that Jesus would just flippantly break these rules. Now, where Sabbath keeping starts to get off track is, um, so the, the, the Jews were told, uh, if you keep breaking the law, if you keep breaking the law, we're gonna, God's going to come and take away our land. And that actually happened. They got taken to Babylon and Assyria uh, for uh, about 70, I think two years, but for a, very, for a long time. Uh, and when they got back, uh, they decided, we're never going to get in that situation again. We never want to be in this place where uh, God comes down to us and say, you're breaking our laws, you're breaking our laws, you're going to lose your land. So there, there became this tradition that built up. Um, it's not, at the time of Jesus, it's not fully uh, codified yet. 
um, but it's what will become uh, the Mishnah is the, is the term. So the, the Mishnah is a c- collection of writings um, by um, famous, famous rabbis for a long, long history. In fact, one of those famous rabbis appears in the New Testament. I won't tell you who. You'll have to look for him. Uh, but this, these Mishnah, these are, these are the most famous rabbis throughout all of history, uh, about all of history up to this point. Um, and they say little things about um, what the law means and even add something to it. So something you need to understand about Mishnah is the idea of fences. So the Mishnah is all about fences. We don't want to break God's law. So what we're going to do is we're going to draw another line further back so that we, never could, we couldn't possibly break the law of God because we're staying this far back, right? So um, this is actually, this, this idea of fences is actually um, affects Jewish people even now. Um, in terms of kosher rules, there's a, there's a biblical law that says you may not boil uh, a baby goat in its mother's milk. There's a whole conversation about what that means, uh, which we're not going to get into, but that's a, that's a biblical law. You cannot boil uh, a kid uh, in its mother's milk. Uh, and because of that, the, the Mishnah, now you, you imagine you have hundreds of goats, right? Uh, and you're, you, you, you're not keeping them all in separate individual buckets. You're pouring them all together. So the people were, would be concerned, like, how do we know for sure that that's not the mother's milk that we're boiling this goat in? So they came up with this, this, this Mishnah. They decreed all meat is forbidden to cook with milk. Um, except for the meat of fish and locusts. That's actually a, that's a direct quote from the Mishnah. Um, that word, if you go into the supermarket and you see kosher food, you'll see the word parev. Parev means there is neither meat nor milk in this food. Therefore, you can add this to milk and you won't break the law, or you can add it to, milk, or to meat and you won't break the law because it is neutral. Um, parev. It's actually the reason why Jews cannot eat eggs and milk together. Eggs, somehow, got, class, got classified as meat. And since you can't have meat with milk, because, remember what, what the, the rule is, the, the, the actual biblical law is you cannot boil a, a, a goat in its mother's milk. You also cannot have eggs in milk. Um, and that is, that is the way that things are even today. But do you see how that works? Fences. The Mishnah is all about fences. And that happened with like so many of the laws uh, of, of the Old Testament. Um, and the, when the Mishnah got a hold of the Sabbath, they added all sorts of fences to keep us from breaking the Sabbath. Um, and, and they added whole, a whole classification of work that can't be done on the Sabbath. So there are things like harvesting, um, healing. Healing is actually on that list. Um, walking too far. They said, you know, you can walk up to a certain point, but if you walk one step further, that is work. Uh, and it like specifically says to you that in the, in the Mishnah. And this is why the Pharisees are getting so mad. And they, they, there's, a, there's a story of uh, Jesus walking with his disciples, and they're walking through a field. And I remember I'm reading this with college students. They're walking through the field, and the disciples start picking 
grain from the field and rubbing it together in their hands to, to break open the hulls and eat it. All of the, uh, all of the college students got very angry because they said, they're stealing. But actually, in Jewish law, this is absolutely legal. What is making everyone mad in the story is, they say, you're harvesting. You're rubbing to, you're removing the hole. That's harvesting. That's against the law. It's not actually against the Jewish law. It's against the Mishnah that has developed over time. So oftentimes it appears that Jesus is just breaking laws left and right. And the, and the people in the story are reacting certainly in that way. Um, but what, what actually is happening, because if you think about this, if Jesus is breaking the law left and right, then how is he our perfect sacrifice? He actually has to live by the law. But what he is doing is he is breaking these arbitrary, artificial fences that have been built up, and it makes everyone nervous. And it looks rather cavalier, if you think about it. Ultimately, Jesus follows the laws of God but he refuses to play the Mishnah game. And that's why he gets in trouble a lot. Tradition is no substitute for the laws of God. And as Christians, again, like being charitable, as Christians, we need to think about this too because we have a little bit of Mishnah in us too. We have fences that we make. When I was getting married, uh, my wife and I, we were looking for a church that we could get married in, and we found this fantastically beautiful church. And they were going to let us use their sanctuary for free. or I think it was free. If not, it was super cheap. And we were so excited. Uh, and uh, we said, yeah, this, this sounds great. Let's, let's do it. Uh, and uh, the person who was giving us the tour, they said, oh, that's, that's one fun, wonderful. Uh, we often don't get, you know, youth that, I guess we were youth back then, uh, we, we often don't get young people uh, want to, you know, get married in our church because we have this rule that there's no dancing allowed in the church. And we were like, ooh, I think we do want to go to some place where we can dance. Um, so there, there's things like that. Like, as Christians, we have done that. We actually continue to do that. We say, okay, the law is, the law is, um, we are supposed to remain pure. Uh, until our wedding day. Uh, and therefore, fence, no dancing. Therefore, fence, you better be careful what clothes you wear. Therefore, fence. So I want us to think about that. I'm not saying that we have to throw away everything, but we recognize that we are on dangerous waters when we say we need fences around what God has said we can find ourselves very similar to the Pharisees, getting angry at people for breaking our rules, but maybe not even breaking God's rules. I pray that we will not fall into that same hole that the Pharisees and the scribes were digging. Anyways, this, this woman, she's in the meeting, the bent woman, uh, and she's brought up before all the people, and Jesus heals her on the Sabbath, breaking through the artificial fences of the well-meaning rabbis, and the ruler of the synagogue is indignant. I actually like indignant That's a, as a word. 
Indignant means anger that is aroused from a sense of injustice. So he looks at this woman who's been disabled and gets healed, and he sees injustice. That's what he sees. And again, he's, he, he sees this injustice, and all he wants is for her to come back a different day. You know, there's plenty of time. I did the math. 85% of the days are not the Sabbath. If 85% of the time you can heal this woman, just not today, Jesus. Just not today. But Jesus recalls the purpose of Sabbath. Remember when I said, well, there were three purposes given. One of the purposes was, you are no longer a slave. And Jesus says, isn't this, isn't this exactly the day that a woman should be freed from bondage? I think that word bondage, I think that was chosen. I think he was saying, this woman was in slavery. I freed her. That's exactly what Sabbath is for. You are wrong, sir. It is completely in line with the purpose of Sabbath to free people. But I think there's another reason why Jesus lays down the boom on this guy. And that is, he points out, but on the Sabbath, don't you feed your animals? And that's really true. I've actually, I've actually read this portion of the Mishnah. Uh, there isn't anything that, that talks about not taking care of animals. In fact, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it specifies that the Sabbath is for animals too, uh, not just for people. But it's interesting. Because nobody ever thought we need fences around this work with animals. I tell you, I've worked with a lot of animals. Sometimes it is work. Um... But no one ever gets upset about that. You know why? Because if we didn't take care of our animals, they would die. They would just die. And animals, in a farming community like I grew up in, animals are important. Your livelihood is your animals. Animals are valuable. Are you starting to see what the problem here is? Animals are valuable. We need to take care of them even on the Sabbath, even if it might maybe get a little close to the definition of work. But this woman, maybe she's not as valuable. Maybe she's a drain on the community. Maybe she hasn't done a good day's work in a long time. Maybe she's just a woman. But all those things, Jesus is angry that they don't see her value. They're gonna, they are going to value the life of animals more than her. Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. And again, this is not a, a term of familiarity. We see this sometimes Jesus will, will use terms of familiarity with people. Um, I, I think as a way of being friendly and, and showing that he accepts them. But when he says daughter of Abraham, he's not saying, I'm familiar with you. Or like, we are, we are friends or I accept you. He is saying, this is a woman of noble blood. This is a woman that must be respected and honored. The ruler is wrong 
because he shows more honor to an animal than to this woman. And I want to point this out because one of the aspects that's very important to Jesus' healing is that he restores people back to community. Here's a woman that is not being thought of very well, and he's saying, you need to think of her, you need to recognize her as a daughter of Abraham. You're not doing that. So he heals her, but he also says, now recognize her as a daughter of Abraham, as she should have been. We see this again, actually. Um, We actually see this many times with Jesus. Uh, Jesus heals lots of lepers. Um, And I can't think of a single uh, time where where he heals a leper where he doesn't say, now go back to the priests and show that you're healed. And why would he do that? Because it's not as if the priests need to, need to be seen for, for God to heal someone. God could just heal them. He sends them to the priests because only the priests could say, yes, you're truly healed. Come back to your family. Come back to the synagogue. Come back to your people. Jesus is healing them and restoring them back to the people they've been kicked out of. Jesus cares about restoring us back to our communities. When Jesus heals you, he heals you all the way. Um, I think that's another reason why Jesus often, after he heals someone, he will commend them for their faith. I think it's easy for people who are watching a person get healed think sort of things like, that's just a lucky person. Or, that person's not really worthy of being healed. Why that person and not this one over here? But Jesus wants the taste in their mouth. Jesus wants these people remembered for their faith. And so he commends them. And in part, he is giving them honor in their community. So I want to show you another example, which again, like I said, at first, does not seem like it's connected to healing, but I I think it is. Um, I'm talking about Zacchaeus, which perhaps you have heard the children's song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yes. Another one that we might have to apologize for back in heaven. Uh, If that's the only thing you're known by, man. This is Luke. Again, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho, and he was passing through. Uh, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature, hence a wee little man. Um, So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that one actually, we're not 100% sure who they is. But it sounds like a bunch of grumblers that I've, that I've read about before. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Zacchaeus, um, as a tax collector, the way that the Roman system worked is they kind of farmed out taxing. They, in, instead, of, instead of sending Roman citizens to collect tribute or taxes from the people that they conquered, they basically said to some citizens, how about you be our tax collector? We need, let's say, let's say $300. We need $300. But truthfully, we don't care what you get. Um, we just want our $300. So these tax collectors would often say, taxes came from Rome, $400, $500. The Romans don't care all the extra stuff. So they were known as thieves and liars. And even worse, because it's Roman taxes they're getting, they can go up to any soldier and say, they're not paying me. Go get, the, go get it with the sword. Go get those taxes. So they were not well liked. They were considered traitors and thieves. And right off the bat, we see that Zacchaeus is very rich. So he is a good tax collector. Uh, good at what he does, not necessarily morally. And when he encounters Jesus, his life turns completely around. Right off the top, he gives half. He says, this is what I have in, your, in money terms. Cut that in half to the poor. And if we stop there, that wouldn't, I, don't, I think that wouldn't say all that much. Because we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot in, in human history of people you know, giving to charity to absolve their own guilt. But that's actually not what Zacchaeus is doing. He is one giving to the poor, and two, and anyone that I've cheated out of anything, I'm going to give them back four times what I owe. This is actually repentance. This is repentance in a very graphic uh, picture. Um, he's going to be a completely different person. He's probably going to be pretty poor, actually, after this. Uh, not the wealthy uh, tax collector that he used to be. This could actually bankrupt him, depending on how much he's been cheating. Um, and while we've seen Jesus talk about sickness and lostness, like I said, this isn't really about healing per se. But Jesus actually cares that this man be restored back to his community. Jesus challenges the way that they call Zacchaeus, a man who is a sinner, which is ironic, given the way that we've already talked in this series about how uh, we are all sinners. This is pot calling the kettle black situation. I know my sin is acceptable to God, but that person's sin, mm mm that's a bad person. Jesus says Zacchaeus, he, he doesn't say, 
this is a man who is a sinner, even though he is. Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. And this statement is, I think it's talking about two things. I think one, it's talking about him joining uh, the community of believers, as Abraham was a believer. But two, it's reminding the people, you don't get to just throw this person away because you don't like what he's been doing. He is one of you. He is a son of Abraham just like you. He's restoring him back to his community by reminding him, this man, he is one of you. And I wish I could keep talking about all these stories where Jesus is doing just this, where he's healing someone and then restoring them. To me, that actually, it speaks a lot to my own brokenness and the ways that I know that God is healing me, but also restoring me. Um, but I do want to talk, I do want to help us apply scripture. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to spend some time doing that. But I encourage you in your, in your readings at home, look for um, when Jesus is interacting with people, look for how he's also restoring them back to community. So what does that mean? What is this, this idea that Jesus, when Jesus heals us, he heals us all the way, including restoring us back to community? I think in a city uh, this large, uh, and even in a church this small, there are always people who are adrift in terms of community. Or they're alone, or looked down upon, or seen as not valuable or worthy. There are people who have made mistake after mistake, and people who are so broken, there are all those kinds of people. But the message of the gospel is, but there are no throwaway people. Jesus made a life Uh, about finding the sick, the lost, and the unacceptable people and reminding them that they were loved by God and of worth. It is no wonder that it seems that a large part of Jesus' ministry was this group of people that were on the outskirts of society. This is the only place where they're hearing anything like this. It is also no wonder why often the people in power, the people who are wealthy, um, have a big problem with the sort of people that Jesus is interacting with. And if the church is acting in the manner of Jesus' life and teaching, we should also be reaching out to people like that. My prayer is that this church in particular and Christianity as a whole will remember that though we recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all people are imbued with dignity and honor as image bearers of God. There are no throwaway people. Even as we call people to repentance, we, must re- we are also reminded that all people are valued by God, even the ones we don't like very much, even the ones we think, that's a really bad kind of sin. So if you are a broken person, you are welcome here. If you ever worry that if people really knew you, that they would reject you, you are welcome here. If you have made some mistakes in your life, you are welcome here. If, if you... If you've ever felt adrift, 
or lost or not acceptable. This is a place where you are. When we ask God to enter our lives and forgive us, he is so near and so ready to accept us. That is actually how Jesus treats sinful people. When Jesus looks, when God looks at the world of sin, he moved to embrace through death on the cross. He didn't stand in the peanut galleries and just talk about how bad people were. It moved him to act and reconcile through his death. That is how Jesus treats sinners. As followers of Christ, we must learn to treat people like Jesus with that kind of welcome. So if you identify with that idea of a lost or a drift person, um, I, I, I beg you to ask God to, to restore you, to heal you, to restore you back to community. Because Jesus is in the business of doing things like that. For those of us who... who um, are very much fully integrated into this community. I think the, the call for us is, is not to be like the grumblers or the, the pointing finger people. We need to look for people on the outskirts or those who may not feel that they belong or those who know only too well that they don't belong. And we must choose to demonstrate the welcome and the restoration that was very much a part of Jesus' healing ministry. And we must remind them and remind us that for anyone whom Christ would die is of inestimable worth and value. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you accept us. We thank you that you heal us. And we thank you that you are in the business of restoring us back to community. God, we pray that you would do that in our lives, and God, you pray, we pray that we would be instruments of your restoration to others. In Jesus' name, amen.